Welcome to From a Woman to a Leader, a podcast dedicated to discussing the challenges and providing tips for women in tech leadership. Hi, I'm your host, Limor Bergman-Gross, and in each episode, we'll hear from other successful women in tech, sharing their stories, insights, and advice. Join us as we empower each other to reach our full potential in the tech industry. everyone and welcome to another episode of from a woman to a leader and today i have a great pleasure having here sabine gideon and we're going to talk about breaking the super woman syndrome and you'll hear more about it i promise you and sabine is an author a speaker an executive career and leadership strategist for women and emerging leaders seeking to elevate their confidence, and she's an influencer. She is a founder of She Leads Network. She is a host and a producer of a podcast called She Leads Now, and probably many more things. So hi, Sabine. Welcome. Hi, Lamore. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. I'm excited so much to having you here, and thank you so much. And let's start maybe by introducing yourself, I probably missed a lot of things. So you got you got all the major ones. You definitely got all the major ones. Thank you so much for for that introduction and and the opportunity to share with your audience. So as you mentioned, I am an author. I do speaking engagements mostly for organizations in training and development or professional development. And I've been serving in the capacity as an executive career leadership strategist for the last five years. My background is actually in human resources. I started my career straight out of undergrad, did that for about 14 years until I realized that this was no longer the path that was going to serve me or to allow me to serve those who I felt called to serve. So I stepped out in entrepreneurship in the deep end about five years ago, and I've been, you know, slowly swimming my way upstream since then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of triggered the move from HR to entrepreneurship? Can you share a little bit? Absolutely. So it originally started back in 2011. I was working in a role where I enjoyed the role. I did not care for my manager. She was by every definition, a micromanager. And I happened to stumble upon this book from Laurel Langmeyer, who I believe is still in this space, but she, it was the something millionaire maker. I believe that that's the title, but I, I'll get you the official one. And it was talking about how these like these regular people that she worked with identified skills that they had and they turned these skills into businesses and that allowed them to eventually leave corporate. And so at the time I had recruiting experience, I had done a whole bunch of interviews. So I read this book and I was just like, oh my gosh, I can be a millionaire writing resumes and teaching people how to be better interviewers. Well, didn't really happen that way. I started with friends and family who, as you know, they don't want to pay. So yeah. <laughs> my disillusion, uh, my disillusion bubble was quickly popped. And it was something that I kind of kept in the back of my mind. The unique thing was because of my role in talent acquisition and HR, I was always supporting individual employees when they were looking to advance to the next level, coaching them, figuring out how to you know, map out where they wanted to be and then reverse engineer what are the skills that they needed? What did they need to focus on in terms of projects? 
And so coaching naturally became part of what I was doing on a day-to-day basis. I just didn't know it. Also, I was, I supported leaders directly. So there was a lot of one-on-ones where, you know, I would get assigned the leaders who were, you know, they, they got results, but they, they had some challenges. They had some people challenges and I would get them behind closed doors and they were human beings. Like I knew more about them than just what was happening. And so something in me, I felt like that was like the training ground, if you will. I finally got to this place where I felt like, you know, I reached the pinnacle of success in corporate America. I wanted an HR business partner role so badly, got it. And then six months in, just realized that this is not, this was not it. It was one of those moments where I was just like, I cannot do this for another 30 years of my life. Like this is, this is absolutely not okay. And the challenge with that was, you know, I had worked myself up to getting that role. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have some other aspiration. And so that caused me to have to go inside and really ask myself two questions. When have I felt the most alive in my career? And when has, when have I felt the most impactful? And it was when I was working with candidates, internal candidates one-on-one and helping them map out their career. And it was when I was behind closed doors with leaders. So once I worked through all of my fear, all of my doubt, all of my insecurity, I decided I put together a plan, obviously, and decided that I was going to take the leap into entrepreneurship with the understanding that, you know what, at the end of the day, I have skills. If things don't work out, I can always go back to corporate. But I didn't want to look back, you know, 60 years from now on my deathbed like, man, I wish I would have at least tried. Absolutely. And this is incredible wisdom, Sabine. Just want to say, you know, that I cannot see how you can stay in the same role for 30 years, no matter what you do. And I think especially, you know, because the corporate world is changing so rapidly and evolving, change is, you know, is happening and we need to be able to adapt and change. And I guess the other thing I want to say is that, well, yes, I did something similar. So I left the corporate world and became you know, my own boss and and started my practice, my coaching practice, and you started your business. But sometimes you can reinvent yourself by still being employed. If that's the right thing for you, you can change. You have skills, as you mentioned, like you have skills and you, you can choose to do something else with those skills. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I do like that you brought up that point because there has been a lot of messaging, especially in the last few years, almost shaming people who work in organizations like you should have your own business. This is not for everybody. This is not for everybody. At least once a year, I reconsider going back into corporate. So, you know, if, if you love what you do, or at the very least, if you have opportunities to grow, you have opportunities to develop. I think what entrepreneurship does is it almost it fast tracks you in having to learn different things. But if that's not if that's not your goal, that's not your aim, I still see people who have been in organizations for decades, but they haven't been in the same role. They've played, you know, they've been in different roles. They've been in different capacities. They've moved from leadership to individual contributor. So I think it's about part does your career play in your life? And how much intentionality do you want to put behind that? It doesn't matter whether it's in entrepreneurship or in traditional working environments. It's a matter of what do you want to create out of your career? Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And uh, 
a lot of people are getting stuck with what they used to do and they think that's the only option for them yeah. to stay at similar maybe advance in this in the ladder but stay like in the same thing you don't have to yeah. you develop skills that are valuable and can be utilized elsewhere yeah yeah the transferable skills that's huge and yeah. I also think just from a mindset perspective too because I do a lot of training around growth mindset and you know part of that all fairness to people who think that way is that's how we've been conditioned right from childhood it's like you know what do you want to be when you grow up we're asking six-year-olds what they want to be yeah. when they grow up meanwhile there are 60-year-olds who still don't know the answer to that and so we are pigeonholed very early and we're kind of conditioned to think that oh if i go down this path this is the path because this is the path that i've invested all this time energy money and resources into but I think that there's an opportunity to say, actually, no, none of our careers have to be linear. In fact, the best leaders, the, uh, the best you know, people that you want to work for are people who have broader experiences because they can relate to different individuals at different spaces much better than someone who only has one narrow way of doing things or one vision or one pathway. Absolutely. And I can share that uh, I uh, immigrated from Israel to the United States. And even though I stated the same kind of career path, just coming from a different country, I brought a different perspective. So sometimes even if you stay, but you move countries, you, you move industries, you make change. Change is a good thing. I know that a lot of people resist change. I see change as growth. Yep. It is a requirement for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we are here to talk about the superwoman syndrome. So first, tell our listeners, what, what is the superwoman syndrome? Yeah, so we all know it. Uh, apparently, there's a name to it now. It's almost like imposter syndrome. Before imposter syndrome was popular, we were like, oh my gosh, I now there's a name to it. So superwoman syndrome is where women in particular feel like they have to carry the weight of everything. And also societal demands or societal expectations that put the onus on women. So if we look back, even just like the last few years, right, with the pandemic, when the great resignation was happening, it was just like, oh, my gosh, people are leaving, people are leaving, people are leaving. And then they did the research and they started to see that a large majority of the people who were leaving were women. And we, you know, of course, when they dug into why, why? Because women then became school teachers. They became caretakers of their children or maybe elderly parents or elderly family members. They were already carrying a, a load at work. And so we've, we've traditionally within our society almost had like this, this additional tax. We, as in women, we had this additional tax around being the the support system for everyone and so as time has happened especially since the great resignation and some women have returned back to work we're recognizing that those same patterns of behavior or the expectation that you know she'll she'll take care of things i have this one example of a client who reached out to me and they were like you know we're at the space where you know it could be a vp level woman who is sitting at a meeting or who was on zoom at a meeting and the expectation is that she's taking notes Right. So there's all of these like unspoken things that one, 
at one point we were willing to take them on because that's what society expected. That's what we are conditioned as, as young girls, not to say, no, it's not polite. You want to be liked and everything else. And then it becomes a space where we are carrying these loads that, you know, mental load has been a big thing within the last couple of years. And we are carrying these loads of multiple people and thinking that, yes, this is what makes us valuable. This is what makes people recognize us. This is what makes people appreciate us when in reality we are we are miserable. So superwoman syndrome is really this this it's 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 societal, uh, I guess, inflicted. However, it takes for the individual to recognize and ask themselves, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because it's serving me? Or am I doing this because this is what I think is expected of me? Yeah, great. But but how do we even know that you have it, that you have this superwoman syndrome in the first place? <laughs> That's a, such a great question. So I used, before I acknowledged it as superwoman syndrome, I used to call it savior syndrome, right? So savior syndrome is that, you know, you are there for everybody. They're like the word no saying no bothers you. Like it hurts you to say no. Setting boundaries feels like you are disappointing people. So some of the symptoms, I guess I would say when you can recognize if, if you might be dealing with superwoman syndrome is when you're asked to do something and you don't have the capacity, we have a tendency. And I know I'm, I'm recovering from this where it's this push through mentality, right? Like we got to push through. I can't tell you how many times when I was in corporate, like if I was sick, of course, you can't do that now ever since COVID, but like we'd be sick and we're dragging ourselves into the office or we're, you know, extending our, our services to other people. So the symptoms of it is, you know, having difficulty setting boundaries. So whether that be, you know, stating, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or if someone violates your boundaries, right, being able to confront them in a loving way. Being able to say no without feeling like you have to apologize, without feeling like you have to give an explanation, asking people for support when you need the support versus that mindset of I'm going to get it done. I'm going to do it all like I'll figure it out. Right. Like that that GSD mindset. And I, I don't want to curse on your podcast, but that, you know, we just get stuff done mindset. So yeah. we know that when we're operating in that space, it's a very lone wolf everything is on my shoulders. And if I don't do it, then it's not going to get done right type situation. So feeds perfectionism, it feeds imposter syndrome, it feeds these feelings of unworthiness, and that your value is only seen or appreciated in the things that you do versus the person that you are. Absolutely. And uh, we set ourselves also uh, bars that are too high that are impossible to achieve. And uh, we try to take too much on ourselves as women. So it's, I think it's a combination of really society, as you mentioned, like there are some norms and that probably we have absorbing since childhood and society maybe expect us to do certain things. But also I think that uh, it's up to women, to us, to defy those norms and, and to defy the need to really do everything ourselves and ask for help. Yes, absolutely. And you look at it, especially like even in our childhoods and you can, you know, for those of you who are listening, kind of go back, right? At home, when it was time to clean, who was tasked to clean? Most I, in my household, the boys didn't clean at all. But like every Saturday morning, the girls were up and we were cleaning the entire house. That was an expectation. 
you know, when it came to when it came to school, you look at the statistics, girls traditionally do better in school than the male counterparts. Like we develop, we actually get these A's and, and these B's better than our male counterparts. And so that mindset carries on with us, right? Like we are full adults and we're still trying to get the A. We're trying to get the recognition. So we can each individually go back and look at what were some of these earlier experiences that taught us more is better, that taught us that, you know, the perfect score, the perfect outcome is what is expected of us. And where do we have opportunity to let go of some of that? Absolutely. Uh, and I want to talk about setting boundaries and saying no. Easier mm-hmm. said than done, right? I mean, uh, this is very difficult for many of us, especially because we don't, we don't want to seem like we're not collaborative. Maybe we don't want to be seen as aggressive. So can you share some strategies, especially in the workplace? Like how can you say no to someone asking you to do something that you really, it's too much, or maybe you shouldn't, as you said, taking notes without being seen as someone who is aggressive or is not collaborative? Yeah, great question. So before I answer that part, I'm going to, I'm going to help the audience kind of unwire so that they can rewire, right? So when you think about us as a part of our human development, we learn the word no very early on, right? If you ever get around a two-year-old, that's that's their favorite word, right? So if you think about our first few words, it's like dada and then no, right? That's a word that we learn very, very early on and we use liberally as children. Now, what happens is depending on how that word is received or acknowledged or recognized by our parents or our caretakers, that's what our subconscious mind registers to say, no is a bad word or no is okay, right? So if you're telling your parents no and you get disciplined, you get yelled at, you get hurt in any capacity, you will associate your subconscious mind as it's developing between zero and seven you will begin to register no as a bad word. You will register no as a hurtful word. You will register no as something that you don't want to put out there because there's a negative consequence. Now, if you're the kid that's saying no and your parents are, you know, uh, your parents were the type of parents who just like, okay, well, this is why I need you to do it. If they explained it to you, if there was some type of communication and they allowed you to assert your power, even at that young age, then your subconscious mind said, no is not a bad thing. No is not a painful thing. No is not a thing to be afraid of. And so you are more likely to say no or in any variety of that without feeling the guilt, the shame, the pain, or the rejection that came with that. And so now let's fast forward to full-blown adults who are being tasked to do things. Oftentimes we don't have those early memories of two and three when we were saying no and we got in trouble with it, but our subconscious mind does. And so for the opportunity that I'm giving the audience here is to think about, you know, how, how, how were you, how was communication in your household with your caretakers? Were you allowed to express yourself? Or was it labeled a bad thing if you said no or didn't want to do anything? And how is that showing up today? So oftentimes I was I was the, you know, I'll take it all. If you've ever done the positive intelligence test, like I, my people pleaser is on like the highest scale, right? And that's part of the, the learnings that I got from my childhood. So for me to say no 
it meant that it came with guilt. It came with shame. It came with fear of rejection. It came with fear of not being liked, fear of abandonment and all these things. And so to me, it wasn't, it wasn't just about, oh, it's easy to say no. People are always saying like, no is a complete, an- complete answer or whatever, right? Or complete sentence. Yeah. And yes, that is true. And there were the emotional attachments that I still had to the word no. Setting boundaries is the same thing. Again, if you have never been given the permission to have boundaries, to determine what you do want, what you don't want, we are now adults in the space where we're like, I don't know if I have permission. I don't know if I'm worthy. I don't know if I'm deserving of X amount of time to myself or saying no or saying, I don't want to be part of this. So I wanted to lay that foundation. Now, how do you do it? Right. First and foremost, you have to recognize what are your limiting beliefs around no, around setting boundaries? What is it in your mind that you tell yourself that if I say no to this person, then it means X. That'll give you some indication of what you've attached to it. Now, when you can recognize that and you're like, wait a minute, if I say no, you know, to my my boss scheduling a meeting on Christmas day, like he's not going to fire me, right? Like we will create these stories. So now that you recognize that, okay, this is not true. One, let me take a step back. One thing that I always say is ask yourself, is it true? So if you tell yourself, if you want to say no to something or you want to set a boundary and the immediate nagging critic says, oh, but that'll mean this, or that'll mean that ask yourself, is that true? And if there's no evidence right? It takes your subconscious mind to go to work. If there's no evidence that a negative thing is going to happen, then say, okay, how can I communicate this? And of course we can get into, there's, there's actually a little formula that I use when it comes to setting boundaries. And I literally have to keep it at my desk because wow. I am still a work in progress when it comes to setting boundaries. So, you know, if someone does something that, you know, that violates your boundaries that you've set, that you've communicated, or maybe you haven't communicated the, the formula is or framework is when you and then you give them the example of what it is that they've done. I feel you name the emotion that is triggered during that action because of that I need. And this is when you are asking for what it is that you need. Right. And then next time this happens, I will or next time I would appreciate it if you would dot dot dot. So that's the framework again. It's when you, whatever the action is, I feel whatever the emotion is triggered in for you, I need, you're telling them what it is that you need for them from from a support perspective. And next time I will, and that could be a consequence or that can be an expectation that you're setting. I love that. I love that. And if you have like uh, examples you can share, I mean, I'll put that uh... Uh, in the blog post. I mean, that will be fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. So <laughs> I'll give you a perfect example. I live on the East Coast. I mean, I live on the West Coast and my family lives on the East Coast. So they, I've been out here five years, Lamora. You would think that they know that there's a three hour difference, but they, <laughs> they have selective memory, right? <laughs> so I will get texts at 5.30 in the morning, four in the morning, because they're, you know, it's their morning. So one of the, one of the boundary settings were, when you send me a text at 5.30 in the morning or whatever time it is, it disturbs my sleep. It disturbs my morning routine. What I need for you is to either recognize that we have a three-hour difference or wait until at least noon your time before calling me. 
Next time, I will either send you straight to voicemail or ignore your text message or, you know, I will call you when I wake up. Right. So that's that's a way to whatever, whether you want to put it position it as a consequence or you want to position it as an expectation. So that's a basic one of, you know, setting that expectation of like, when you do this, this is how I feel or this is what happens to me. And, you know, this is what I need from you. And next time it happens, this is what you can expect. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And so, so pragmatic. Love that. Yes. I'm all about the pragmatic <laughs> or else yeah. we won't take action towards it. It has to be simple. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the strategy that I use towards, you know, saying no, depending on what's the context, obviously, but saying no, for example, for a manager that asks you to do too, too many things that you cannot handle all of that is just kind of a sharing with them what's the implications are going to be, you know, that it's actually not going to be good for them if they overload me with work that I'm not capable of doing all of that. Yeah. You know, that I'm going to eventually, you know, not do everything properly and I will burn out and I will be, you know, whatever. And, and, and sharing how it's not good actually for the person who is asking you to do something, how it's not good for them to ask you for too many things. If that's the case. Yeah. I had a situation and, and thank you for bringing that up brought it to light. I have a, I had a manager who was a very, very demanding manager. Like he, he was a perfectionist, right? So it wasn't micromanaging, but he just had things that he wanted a certain way. And I remember, I remember I kept saying, yes, I kept saying, yes, I kept saying yes. And then I got to a point where I was just like, okay, I can't anymore. Right. And so I, him and I had a conversation and he was just like, help me understand what the challenge is. I was just like, okay, well, this is what you've assigned me, right? These are all of the things that I'm working towards right now. And at this point, you know, with so many balls in the air, I'm going to start to drop those balls. I would, I need your help and I need your support in helping me to prioritize this because right now it feels like everything is a priority. That was like one, one step in terms of like getting them to understand these are all the things. And I, I think that's another important piece. We always anticipate or we expect that our managers, our leaders, our peers, they know what's on our plate, right? No one, everyone is so worried about their own thing that they can't possibly know. So this is actually you supporting them and you supporting yourself by saying, hey, this is the gamut of everything that's on my plate where I need your support. And this is the asking for help where I need your support is in prioritizing this so that we could get it done. The other thing I remember telling him at one point was, you know what, I'm willing to take these things on, but just understand that, you know, and at the time, I think I didn't have access to some, some system or whatever the case may be. And I was just like, yes, I'm willing to take these things on, but I'm also, you know, working with one hand behind my back. Right. So there's only so much that I can carry with the one hand that is working. So it's really about depending on your relationship with the the leader or the manager, I think engaging them to support you is a great strategy to help you get out there. This is what I have on my plate, help them see, and then ask for what you need, ask for that support. Absolutely. And yes, we, uh, we make a lot of assumptions, right? About what the manager knows, what they think, what they will do, right? You said, oh, they will fire me or whatever. We make so many assumptions. Stop making so many assumptions. Ask, say what you need. It's easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, so saying what you need, I mean, I feel like this is something that you, that women really struggle with, what they need, asking yeah. for help. 
you have to practice it. It takes practice. It, it's, it's almost like anything, right? If you've never learned it, if you've never done it, the only way to master anything is to practice. And so maybe you don't start at work. Maybe you start at the house, right? You start asking your husband or your partner or your wife or whoever, you ask them for things that you need in that moment and you keep exercising that muscle. And so when you get into different situations, it doesn't feel as daunting because you will have already built those reps, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Practice is key. And uh, yes, usually, you know, when, when it's hard for you to set boundaries at work, it will also be relevant at your personal life. So that's a great tip to maybe, maybe try it in a safer way. environment mm-hmm. that you feel more comfortable with people you feel more comfortable doing so yeah and I can't believe I mean we're talking almost for 30 minutes and I want to let you kind of give you the space to share a little bit about your work about you what you do and how can people reach out to you yeah I appreciate that this has been a great conversation as you know we can talk about this for yeah forever <laughs> yeah yes so as Lamore mentioned in the beginning I am the founder of she leads network It actually has been on hiatus for the last year but We are in the enrollment process for it to come alive again next year in 2024. And so she leads network is a space for ambitious impact driven women to come together for coaching community and collaboration. I think if anything has come out of this year in particular is that when women come together, we create change, we create impactful change. And so I want to be able to support those who are in that space, who have goals, whether you're in corporate or entrepreneurship, looking to find a community of collaborative women who can support you and more importantly, leverage each other's resources so that we can advance together. So that's SheLeadsNetwork.com. Again, my podcast is She Leads Now. It is getting a name change at the beginning oh. of the year. We're, we're going to get to the two-year anniversary in January. So changing the name to create a little bit more alignment on how I support women overall. So you can still find it as She Leads Now. It'll get the name change, but I think it'll still be available on all the podcasts at the same links that they are right now. And what's the new name going to be? Oh, I can't reveal it just oh, yet. Oh, it's a surprise. Wow. <laughs> it's a surprise. But I will, I will let you know, because depending on the timing of this release, perhaps it'll be, it'll be changed then. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Well, Sabine, thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Same here, Lamore. Thank you. And thank you to your audience for tuning in. Thank you for listening to another episode of From a Woman to a Leader. This is your host, Lamore Bergman-Gross. And I want to encourage you to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Lamore Bergman, and let me know. What do you think about the episodes? Feel free also to comment on Apple Podcasts. And tell me, what do you want me to talk about? Which guests do you want me to bring? I really appreciate that and have a wonderful day.